Welcome to PolicyWise. Today we've got, I guess you could call this a little roundtable discussion once again, throwing it back to our first ever episode for season three. Michael's got a very, very special policy idea he wants to share with us. And we're going to be going around asking him some questions, getting some explanations. So yeah, with that being said, let's get into it. Y'all might know me by this point. My name is Michael, uh, Michael Wiafe. I've been hosting with PolicyWise for a while now. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm going to finish my master's degree in a little bit over a month, um, which I'm so excited for, but excited to be here and talk about stuff. I'm Demi, and um, I don't know, just uh, check out the bio on the website for me. And I'm excited to be here and talk about Michael's policy today. Do we have a website? <laughs> that has your bio on it. I mean, probably like a fan website or something, <laughs> right? Go to my personal website. Everyone, go to Demi's yeah. LinkedIn. <laughs> fan <Yeah>, her network. <laughs> All right, well, I'm here. I'm Ellie. <laughs> if you don't already know, if you haven't checked out one of the couple episodes I'm on, I'm a second year at Berkeley. I do a bunch of environmental stuff. That's most of what you need to know. Hi, um, my name is Mahek. As uh, you probably know, since I've also been on the PolicyWise team for a while, um, I'm also a student at UC Berkeley. I believe I'm, I'm the third one out of the four of us. Um, and I'm a freshman. Um, yeah, I'm excited to talk today. Woo! All right, y'all. Let's get right <laughs> into it. So let's get into it. Um, so you're going to learn a little bit about me. And this is okay. Let me before we dive into it. I think lots of policy, if not all policy is written from the perspective of the writer. Right. Um, or is taken from a storyteller of some sort in which maybe legislators or other policymakers might hear a story and develop some sort of solution to basically uh, change, change the scenario so that stories like that do not happen again. And so um, as an aspiring, I guess, policymaker and thinking about what changes to um, the frameworks that we live by might need to be created, I have to draw on my own background and my own stories um, is, I think, my, my perspective. And it's very important for policies to also have audiences as they're being discussed and created to bounce back ideas back off of, um, share other perspectives that may exist so that maybe we're not taken into account into the original design. Um, and so if, if anything, this is like a test, um, of, of a policy idea that I'm not going to say originated with me. Um, although I would say that like I, I did original analysis into it and, um, not necessarily research, but just looking into what the effects might be judging by what actions might've been taken in other jurisdictions, um, and maybe similar actions, uh, that might yield comparable results. Um, if that might sound like a bunch of mumbo jumbo, I hope that that makes sense pretty soon. So in order to really set the scene for what we're going to be talking about here, we got to take it back to me in third grade. Eight-year-old Michael was a menace. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was, uh, he was inquisitive. Um, he was inquisitive. This, uh, this was back in a time when, um, this was back when I was very early on in my educational career, obviously, but uh, up until third grade, I uh, I was kind of a teacher's pet. I 
was a talker. I was asking questions. I'd hang out with the teacher at lunch. I'd, you know, do all those kind of things until I got to third grade. Uh, my third grade teacher hated me <laughs> for reasons I still don't know to this day, although I can hypothesize uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge into what that might mean. Um, so in third grade, I would get detention almost every day. Um, and every time it was sort of like a different reason, or maybe she'd give me multiple days of detention at a time for reasons that really like now that I look back were really petty, <laughs> um, like just very small things. Um, I got sentenced to, the, to detention more in third grade, more than I got to actually go to lunch um, and play with my friends on the playground. Um, and I learned kind of by looking back that I think my third grade teacher was finding ways to punish me because I think she thought of me as disrespectful. I think um, just being candid that a part of that must have come from the fact that I was the only black guy in the class. Um, and potentially that those who have looked like me who came before me um, maybe gave her a bad taste. And this is exactly how prejudice and racism works. Um, and so when I came in the class, she was immediately plotting. <laughs> um, and so that made it that something as small as dropping a pencil. Like it literally, if I drop my pencil, go down to pick it up, she would assume I'm doing something disruptive to the course or doing something that shouldn't be done in class. And I would literally get detention for dropping a pencil. Um, I also remember uh, somebody throwing a paper airplane at me from across the room. As a third grader, the only appropriate response when being thrown a paper airplane is to pick it up and throw it back. Um, anyway, so I picked it up and I threw it back and I got in so much. I think I got like a whole week of detention for that. And the student who originally threw the paper airplane at me got nothing because I was told to be the bigger person and that I should have known not to throw it back. Um, I got detention for asking questions that she thought was disrespectful. Mainly for me, it was just simply asking a question, which I still do ask a lot of. You know, that was my first time glimpsing into what is now known as the school to prison pipeline, where, you know, students who maybe look like me will get punished and consistently and constantly. Um, and eventually it'll get elevated to like actual police. And now you basically get uh, students who are maybe being a little bit more uh, different in the classroom, um, being punished even further um, in, in the actual penal system, making it so that uh, great opportunities for higher education down the road are essentially decimated. Um, and that really what we're getting at here uh, is, um, is an implicit messaging but in some ways could be very explicit that the student does not belong in the classroom. That is that is what is being told. Uh, when you punish students, what you're telling them is your behavior was, uh, was unwarranted. And uh, when you take them out of the classroom for further punishment, you are telling them that they do not belong. Even if the student is extremely capable uh, and they just have not been in an environment in which um, actually was conducive to their learning and shows their skills and shows their intelligence. Um, I think if I was set on the same trajectory that I was coming out of second grade, I think I would be in a different place, although I don't know if that place would be better than it is now, because I think I learned a lot from my journey. Um, but essentially that further sets the stage for what we're talking about here, and that's the implicit and explicit messaging that students get from K through 12 and how that might affect their college going habits. So if you've been told, let's say for me, starting from third grade implicitly, maybe this place isn't for you and these people don't understand you and you consistently get that message growing up, middle school, high school, you get teachers who tell you you're not smart enough, you get teachers who tell you that college isn't for you um, or they tell you to, that maybe, you know, I saw 
a tweet from Alex Padilla, um, kind of showing him telling a little bit of his story that his his teacher told him not to apply to MIT because he does they don't want him to be disappointed. Little things like that are telling students that this is not for you. Um, and so the policy that I'm proposing is one that would actually uh, actually look to change the way that the system works um, and essentially move from a K through 12 to higher ed opt-in model to an opt-out model, saying that essentially right now, if you want to go to college, it's on you to apply. It's on you to do everything. Um, it's not like, you know, middle school to high school where if you just exist, then they're going to say, here's your new class schedule, you know, see you, see you soon. Um, and what I'm proposing is that students who maybe got that implicit messaging and when they're seniors in high school, are they going to then opt in to apply for more schooling, which they've been told their entire lives that they don't deserve or that they don't fit in or that it's not for them. And it's for the smart kids, the white kids, oftentimes. Um, so. What I'm proposing, it's a long roundabout way to get to it, but what I'm proposing is an automatic enrollment from um, high school to college in local community college. Um, basically saying when you're a senior in high school, if you do not opt out for one reason or another, either you have a full-time job already set up, um, you applied to a four-year university, got in and plan to go, um, that you're going into the military or some other reason as to why you wouldn't move on to higher education, that you receive a letter in the mail saying that you've gotten accepted with your fall schedule, um, and you are invited to an admitted stay for your local community college and start classes in the fall. If a student chooses to drop out after they start classes, that's up to them. Um, they're adults, you know, they can choose what they wanna do. But removing that first initial barrier to higher education would do wonders for the amount of students that are able to enter. And some of you might be wondering, well, why do they even need to do this? Like the economy is not built for everybody to go to higher education, et cetera, et cetera. The economy's starting to go in that direction in which you need to get a, a level of education um, in order to be successful for the most part. Um, and if you don't, you have a higher likelihood of being in poverty than you do not. And so, you know, we know that this is needed for the, the modern economy. California needs it. We are in deficit of nearly a million or slightly over a million bachelor's degree by 2030. Um, and so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to change the game if we need our economy to keep on growing in the same direction that we need to grow it in. Um, was that a good explanation of the policy? I'm gonna I'm gonna look to the, the group on the table. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> solid, solid okay. intro. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um wait, can I add just a little bit more? So, I'm so sorry. Yeah, go no, on. go for it. <laughs> I was just, I was just gonna say because I'm like looking at so for for the listeners I actually wrote a paper on it and so I'm kind of like leaning on this very long paper um twenty pages single or twenty pages double spaced um like imagine <laughs> how many students who have had teachers all their lives that treated students as constant threats and distractions they never expected or supported them to extend to greater things um what this policy is looking to do is erode barriers that say instead of this is not for you instead say congratulations and welcome in just beyond the achievement effects what it would do to increase the confidence and academic self-efficacy of students of color and low-income students um, who've never had anyone in the education system say you belong here providing them that first message that they belong. Cool. Okay, Ellie, please. Yeah, no, that was great. That was great. 
Um, I'm really curious, like obviously, in my opinion, I think this is a great idea and I think it would open doors to so many people who have felt like the doors have been just automatically closed to them no matter what they did. Um, but I'm really curious what this will look like in practice. I mean, I know I I took some city college classes and I think even just that small number of classes I took, just the bureaucracy to even try to get involved in that like small amount was just, it really laid out to me how in intense and <laughs> crazy the process of enrollment can be if you don't a if you're not even convinced that you want to go or would be supported if you go and b if like there's no one helping you through that process of trying to enroll it's like a maze that's impossible so i'm really excited as to hear about what this policy would look like in practice like how exactly is it is it getting into the process of enrollment and making sure that people are automatically enrolled and like have everything that they need and like how are people being um i guess selected to to like be admitted in um you know like how are they identifying who already has something set up for themselves or is it just a blanket thing everyone um automatically gets admitted into community college and then you have to opt out um even if you've already been accepted somewhere else um, I guess, yeah, if you could just enlighten us as to what this would look like in practice. Yeah, these these are great questions. Um, and it would require what I call bone breaking, breaking the bones of the current infrastructure. Right now, um, we rely on a few people to, to facilitate this, high school counselors, college admissions counselors, um, and enrollment folks. Right now, those are three different groups of people. What I think would start what would need to happen in order to move towards this model would be consolidating these three groups of people into one cohesive unit. And so some like some high school counselors would then be very iterative, be very in touch with the students. Um, what I imagine is, let's say, January of your senior year, you for us, it was our English class in the Redlands Unified School District. Where like if you were if everybody were to get a message like everything happened in English because everybody had to take English, and so in your English class you would just get a little form that says hey what are you doing, what's your plan, and it, let's say a student's just like oh I applied to four years and I hope to go cool, we'll check in with you right before you graduate. A student says I'm not sure yet okay, well now we know that they you know that's somebody that we'll have to work with to get them college admission not even get them it's automatic it's already going to be there. Uh, but just put them in the process, send it over to the community college and say, hey, this is a student that's going to be coming in or we plan for them to come in. Um, student can check it and say, hey, military. Be like, all right, cool. You know, and maybe we'll have connections to the, you know, you'll get them connected to the military in that way. Or you'll have somebody else that says, oh, I, you know, my family has a business and I'll be working there. Cool. Enjoy. Go on your way. Um, and then from that, what I'm, what I'm imagining, and this is kind of also building on there's multiple times in this conversation we're going to talk about current policy that exists in which is going to serve as kind of like a foundation for this to stand on. One of them, it, at least in the state of California, is the California Cradle to Career Data System that is just about getting off the ground, but it's linking data, basically linking data structures. The way that it currently exists is like when you go from elementary school to middle school, um, your, your school district has that info. The, where that breaks out is when you go from high school to college your college is not linked to the high school district. But if we link that data, it would be as simple as that data just moving on to college. You have all the classes they've already taken. You know what classes they need. It's a matter of just asking the student. And it doesn't even have to be when they're seniors in high school. They, get, they have time to pick their major. And just saying, we know that you need these general education classes within your first two years, whatever major you go into. Um, which classes do you want to take? Here are your options. 
and just here's your new schedule. You know, it's basically linking the data that we already have. This is one thing that I hated about applying to college is I'm telling these people information they should already know. And like, it was so stressful too. I was filling out those applications and they were like, what class did you take? And I'd be like, oh, this is what it says on the schedule. This is what it says on my transcript. Am I going to be like, are you going to think I took something else if I write it this way or like whatever? And all the A through G requirement stuff, it was a mess. It was so stressful. And like that was me applying like with all my friends doing the same thing with my parents helping me out, like always bugging my high school counselor. Like the current system is just ridiculous. Like you have my transcript. You have my transcript. You asked for it. No. It's so like, why, why do I have, do to... I have to <laughs> fill it out by hand? Yeah. No. It was crazy. Yeah. So that, <laughs> that data already for exists. everything. Yeah. <laughs> I on to that. It's not very uniform either. And so yeah, colleges don't even necessarily consider the fact that there weren't all these classes available at every high school. And the classes that were available are often a reflection of the resources that high school had, um, which is frustrating but i also think adds to the point that you're trying to make of why a a newer system is needed because if you couldn't afford to have as many ap classes in your school district then colleges should know that um and they shouldn't penalize you for it Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely i will say i have a question but also i will say on this that the csu at least like through csu fresno actually was really good about this so I, I have to give props to them in the sense that, like, it went way too smooth. I was like, I almost was like, oh, my gosh, just like the hassle of going through what I know other people are going through going to UCs. I was like, oh, this is this is awesome. So um, just like a small shout out there because that was that was nice. Um, I do have like several questions, Michael. And yeah, thank you for sharing uh, the sto- your story and then also yeah going into a bit of the detail on the policy itself. Um, I guess there's like a couple questions that I have on like the logistics front. Um, and you know, I think some of us can like assume these answers. So to get like more in depth, like how do you feel like four years will play into this? Like, could you imagine the UC and the CSU system being like, we actually want to join in on this automatic enrollment. Uh, we want to provide for like a certain subset of students, or do you only see the CSU and the UC and like other private uh, schools maybe going through just direct like pulling directly from community colleges yeah that's a that's a good question I see them pulling directly from community colleges I I I know that there are some of these that exist currently in, in terms of college promise programs um, and so I would imagine that what might happen I'm just this is off the fly why well, would I imagine what might happen is like let's say the top 15% of students from school districts might get automatic enrollment to the four year. But I think for the majority of students, those who would not, for the most part, would not already have a plan. Because if you're in the top 15%, more likely than not, you are already looking at Stanford. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're already looking at universities that maybe are not by you, like where you live. And that's not the case for everybody. But like for the most part, those are the students that already have things figured out. Um, and so they might not even be a part of this when it like who actually will benefit from this, I doubt will be the top students. 
Um, although there likely will be some. So I imagine them playing a small role, but I think what they're going to be focused more so on is looking back towards the original design of uh, California's higher education system, which is that they receive the transfers. And so that all the students who are going to be starting out of the community college are going to have to transfer within two years. And so I think the four years need to make a lot more space for that. It would be focused more there. Okay, I have a question. So I am curious, do, I mean, I guess I'm curious, A, like what the current examples of this are. I know you mentioned that this is being implemented in some places. I think Idaho is one place that's either currently implementing or thinking about implementing this. But I'm curious, um, I mean, obviously community colleges, maybe this is a little bit different with like the possibility for remote learning. And I guess that's a whole other thing we could talk about in a different episode. But what about the capacity issues of community colleges? Like how can we guarantee everyone's able to get enrolled into this institution and also make sure classrooms aren't like severely overcrowded? We're not understaffed. We have enough like personnel to support this. Um, Does the current structure of the community college system in California, is it going to, would it be able to accommodate um, the influx of more students, presumably, if everyone's automatically enrolled. Um, would it be able to do that as it currently stands or like what changes need to be made before this could be actually implemented? I think this one is a massive question mark, but I will do my best to hypothesize. Um, in one way, absolutely not. They're not ready for this. Um, but I think that they are trying to be. And so I think that there are still movements that might need to be made to accommodate that level of influx of students. I also think that once, you know, once the four years get on board with accepting more transfers and thinking more about that, that that is a big part of it, where you have students that are taking up seats at community colleges for three, four, five, six years because they're unable to transfer out. And so if they have those transfer out abilities, then there would be more seats at community colleges. We also know that um, after the pandemic, community college enrollment dipped quite a bit. Um, A lot of four years saw increases, uh, public four years specifically saw increases. Um, A lot of privates and community colleges saw enrollment drops. And so like, theoretically, there's a lot more space for that than there would be would have been a few years ago. I also think that with a more guaranteed, with a more guaranteed source of students, that there is better financial planning that might occur and that would facilitate a larger amount of growth. Um, and all, there's a lot, also a lot of support services that go into it that also make, you know, college systems more expensive. My thought is by, you know, kind of unleashing, imagine how much administrative burden will get alleviated by a lot of admissions counselors. Like there's going to be a lot more space, I think, created within financial structures to make facilitating more students make a lot more sense. Um, those are just a few thoughts, uh, and and I'm sure we'll get to an affordability conversation for students at some point. But, you know, I don't think they're ready for it yet, but I think they're planning for it. And I think that there's movements that are made being already being made in that direction to create space. Kind of off, off that, like, off Ellie's point and just, like, taking a greater focus on some of the counter arguments. Out of different counter arguments that you've heard against this, like, what do you think is the most convincing um, and then, of course, what's your response to that? Oh, wow. Um, what I think is the most convincing. I think they're all they're all somewhat convincing. Like, I understand them all and I agree with them all. Um, I'll start with the one that's least convincing and then work my way up. 
<laughs> the one that's least convincing Perfect. is people don't need education. Please don't come at me with that. Don't do it. It's just I will blow you out the water. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? We, the data's there. The data's clear. Like higher education is the one way to get people out of poverty. Um, higher education, uh, career technical education. Like these are the things that improve people's lives. Um, and is other than getting married is the one single most tried and true way to pull somebody out of poverty. Give them a college degree, bam. You know, I think one of the, now that I, I think the most, I think you already brought up the most convincing counter argument, which is there's no space. Um, I think that's the most convincing counter argument to me, but I, I just was able to kind of scroll through the paper um, and call, community colleges saw 15% enrollment drop. Um, uh, in the state of California. So, you know, just kind of putting a number to what I was saying about uh, an enrollment drop. I think another convincing counter argument is that, look, students already don't have enough support. What makes you think that adding the amount of students that would need more support, like, right, the students who benefit from the policy would need more support. Simply, so like, simply put, would need more support. Um, I think that what it would actually do as well is, is how, how I'm going to address that counter argument is I think by adding a large amount of students that need more support, the support that currently exists will become more solidified. I think it'll become more, more, um, campuses will be more ready for the students that they are receiving um, rather than, you know, kind of assuming that the students that they receive are one way or another. It's just like, oh, we know we're going to get uh, you know, low-income students who have been told their whole lives that this isn't for them. So why don't we create all the structures that are needed for them to exist versus now, now we're, you know, people are starting to have that conversation when it should have happened a long time ago and the reality is that these students have been here just about the entire time. Ellie brought up um, Idaho and one of, like, some of the other jurisdictions doing similar, um, similar movements. Um, so Idaho kind of has a little bit of a different structure. Um of course, there are ways to improve it. I think they had a great place to start, but they have a tiered system, actually. Um, and so if you're a student with a certain GPA, then you're considered, like, let's say top tier, then you get admission to um, the top universities, like University of Idaho, maybe Idaho State University, I think is maybe tier two. Um, these are off the top of my head. So like, um, I'll have to pull up, you know, some more details around this. But basically, if you are on the bottom tier, then it's community college. Um, some of the results that they saw of this, and it's only been a few years, it includes a 3.1 increase in overall college enrollment across two and four-year institutions, a 6.7% increase in the number of high school graduates immediately enrolling in college, an 88% increase in applications to college um, in applications to college completed, and a 6% cumulative enrollment increase all across the board, and a 3% decrease in students who left Idaho for college. Um, and some of you might be wondering, like, why was applications mentioned? My policy kind of gets rid of the application process. Um, but Idaho essentially says, like, look, you're in this tier. You gain automatic enrollment. We just need you to fill out this application. And so they still required them to fill out applications, but they saw an 88% increase in applications completed to college. Um, and this, uh, when I was thinking about this policy, it was specifically for the region which I grew up in, which is the Inland Empire. Um which is about an hour, about 60 miles east of LA, closer to the desert. Um, and one of the major issues within the, the Inland Empire is that the best and brightest leave. Like that is like, if you talk to anyone and ask like, what's the biggest issue about the workforce, it's that like people who have opportunity do not stay. 
Um, and so that that statistic around a decrease in students who left, that's that's an, also an important statistic for certain regions that tend to not have resources or get overlooked um, when it comes to to certain policy decisions. And just to clarify on that, is part of the reason is the beneficial like is it beneficial because community colleges are so much like there's so many more community colleges and they're often more localized to like individual communities that going to a community college actually keeps people within the same region? You know, I actually don't know. I I can't think of why that might be the thing. Um, What I would imagine is like, let's say again, like you're one of the top students, top 10, 15, 20% maybe. And you're like thinking about college and you're like, oh, I want to go there. I want to go there. I used to be like that too. Mm -hmm. My dream college for a lot of the like, High school years was actually Ohio State um, because I loved the Ohio State marching band. Hmm. But when it came down to it and I like actually applied and like saw how expensive it would be for me to leave the state, it was like, "Eh, actually, maybe I won't. But maybe some other students like don't actually look at what it might be like to be in the state and don't get that letter of saying you're automatically admitted to actually this pretty good university that's in state and it's going to be affordable. Um, If you don't get explicitly told that and you're already dreaming out of state, what's stopping you? Right. Um, it basically gives them an option. It gives a competitive option. Yeah. Something something that you mentioned earlier, uh, or at least think it relates to what you're saying earlier, is um, something that's being rolled out at the University of Michigan. Um, I'm not sure and everyone's like familiarity with it, but the idea is instead of providing automatic enrollment, they provide uh, basically like automatic or like they they send information to students who would have a good chance of getting into the University of Michigan um, from like high and low and middle income backgrounds. And it's a randomized control trial. So they're testing it across different groups. Um, But basically, they sent a letter out to students who qualify. And those who were more likely to, uh, or I'm sorry, those who received like a letter, which basically said like, you would get a full ride scholarship, which basically it's all financial aid. So it's like, wasn't even University of Michigan paying for it. It was just saying like, you're going to get this full scholarship, increased enrollment like tenfold. Um, So it's also like an interesting kind of, Hmm. I guess like sister, (laughs) sister policy um, that would be interesting to look into as well. And obviously this is something, potentially a way that four years could like get involved in this policy. Um, But we could, but we could link the paper, I think it's like a working paper at this point, um, to, to this thing in the, in the description of our episode. Um, but it is really, really interesting. And what it really relates to what you were saying earlier is that because this policy, because your policy is in place, that it'll be like the systems will become more prepared for students, um, from diverse backgrounds and what they've actually seen, in the Michigan study is that students who are coming from uh, like first generation backgrounds have like come together to like formulate like their own um, like resource center. And and so it like just like Mm. demonstrates that like having that representation is going to, you know, multiply the amount of resources available um, to students of, of, of those backgrounds, which I think supports your, your point earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I think it's interesting that Michigan is doing that. And I think you brought up something interesting as well, which was the affordability piece. Um, I think you brought up a scholarship and, and thinking about the funds. Um, I I didn't consider it a counter argument 
but I can be considered a counter argument of like, well, these students who don't have resources, who've been told that they don't, you know, et cetera, et cetera, how the heck are they going to pay for this? Like you're putting a unfunded cost on the student by putting them into community college because we don't have universal free community college, but we do. Um, there's a lot of resources available. This is kind of paired with um, thinking through some of the policies leading California that haven't been enacted just yet, but are starting to move in the direction of requiring every high school graduate to fill out the FAFSA. What this is going to do is put every student that's at or FAFSA, CADA, um, uh, AB 540 students, like put them in a position to where they will receive aid from the federal government, meaning that if all, if any of them are considered low income, they will all get the Pell Grant um, and we'll, we'll kick the ball over to the federal government to deal with it um, since that's a, a um, I forgot the, the policy term for it. It's a mandated policy. It's like a entitlement. That's what it is. It's an entitlement, meaning if you qualify, you get it. That's that. Um, so all the students that qualify will get it. The second piece is California has actually enacted the California Promise. Um, which just about guarantees the first two years of community college to be free um, if you qualify, which a lot of students do. And so with uh, federal support, with with Pell Grant plus Cal Grant, you kind of already being out there um, with uh, DACA recipients, AB 540 funding, um, DREAM Act, like with all of these things coming into play, for the most part, this is going to be free for the most part, for the students that need it. The students who will have to pay will likely be those who do not, um, who do not need it. And community college in comparison to four years is you know, much more affordable. And so even that is going to be a small lift um, for most. And I, and I think that that's even gonna get ironed out as, as institutions receive these students, whoever might be left out of all of these resources. Um, I, think, I think those will come to light, um, but I, th- I think it's a pretty, it's pretty tight tightly woven net of support that currently exists and by putting this policy on top of it we would require expansion of those supports but um we would have a much 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 more educated workforce in existence um, which would grow the economy i think tenfold and that would be that would be in community college uh community not community colleges that would be in communities that tend to not have educated workforces to build out more opportunities and higher paid opportunities and present a lot more chances for mobility, um, which comes with uh, usually a, a degree. Um, yeah. I am. Um, okay. So I have, I feel like this would be like, I don't know. I feel like this would be some, someone's counter argument. Um, and I would just like love to hear, your response to it. And that would be that the value of uh, like a two-year degree and even a four-year degree would somehow be less, it would become less valuable because it's become saturated because so many people now have it. Um, What are your feelings as far as that goes? And not just like valuable in the sense of like the actual skills gain um, and like your competitiveness in the job market, but just like general perception around the quality of these degrees yeah i think um that's a that's a common argument right like oh it's gonna make my degree worthless um a degree is not a free pass it is not a you know it is not the golden ticket a degree says that you have gained a certain you've taken a certain level of classes 
that you've been in a certain space for long enough and that you're qualified to do some type of work. There's still going to be a lot that comes into it. You're going to have to get work experience. You're going to have to get, you know, other professional experiences in order to be competitive in the market. Um, and I think generally that argument, and I'd love to be corrected if anybody wants to differ with me on this. I think that argument to me is rooted in the tie to um, those who receive a college degree tend to look like and come from certain backgrounds. And you link, you put those together and you assume that, you know, those are the people who are deserving because they work hard or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, those are the people who've had opportunity for the most part, a lot of their lives. And therefore like, oh, you're going to put those people at a disadvantage. It's like, no, we're actually leveling the playing field and making it so you actually have to try and you actually have to be good at what you do to get to the top of the income bracket. And that's currently not the, econo the, the economy we have. I also kind of feel like that's like a shut the door behind me mentality. Like, oh, I put the I put the work in to get my degree. Da, 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 like, no, like no one else gets a free pass to do that. And it's just like, I don't know, it's. It's a lame response, in my opinion. I feel like educating as many people as possible is good for everyone. And so, yeah, Michael, I agree with you that that, that, that argument doesn't hold water the way I think some people want it to. No, I totally agree. It's interesting because I think if you really think about the, like, different arguments that exist against providing more education, it's, it's really – there's, like, five of them. And if we could <laughs> – you know what I mean? There's, like, there's like five arguments that come every single time, and there's ideological differences that take place on either side. And at the end of the day, people are making a decision between being exclusionary and elitist versus being, you know, inclusive and, <laughs> like, progressive on it. So um, I think, you know, the response that you have to that, I think, can definitely be – leveraged in like a lot of different situations where you're arguing for the expansion of quality education um so great um <laughs> um i did have uh another question and mm -hmm. i wanted to get back kind of to like the root of the policy in the first place which is to you know get at the kind of like the implicit and explicit pushes that certain people get away from, you know, going to college or like other, you know, academically prosperous routes. Um, what other policies do you think could fill or like complement this current one? Um, and like really tackling that issue? Hmm. You know, I think that there's a lot there. The biggest one that comes to mind, the biggest one that comes to mind is affirmative action, Prop 16 from 2020. What we're going to need to do is change the faculty, administration, staff um, on college campuses to reflect the new diversity. Right now, we don't have the policies in place in order to actually make that happen um, and actually create the support that's needed for a lot of these students to come onto the campuses and hit the ground full running uh, in their fullest potential and be able to achieve that full potential. I agree. And then I also feel like the, I feel like I, I get even more discouraged and then also like passionate about the weeding out before college, which happens due to the things that we're talking about now with like terrible third grade teachers um, and like administration on that level and like the opportunities that exist in K through 12, um, which just, yeah, perpetuate all of this. And I think your I think your policy does actually a really fine job at like getting at such a key 
bridge between those two those two major issues it came from something i had actually heard somebody else kind of start referring to didn't necessarily name it or put all the details in place or do the research or any of that but i was like hmm what if we were to try that out what might that policy model actually look like another jurisdiction that i'll bring up did something similar was west sacramento um although they didn't do the you know to the extent that idaho did which idaho calls it direct admissions um actually let me talk about idaho a little bit more for a second only because i found a brand new article fresh off the presses last month actually which is um more recent than when i did the paper said direct admissions so these are new stats to the ones that i added earlier direct admissions raised first time undergrad enrollments by over eight percent and in-state student enrollment by almost 12 percent um and that is 20 the how it affected enrollment in 2017 to 2018 so even that data is because it usually takes a while to really analyze data and you know you have to wait for certain things to come into place so anyway that's looking at that data um uh it, just to see the impacts more further down the line west sacramento didn't have you know kind of as detailed all they literally did was send a letter to every graduating senior saying congratulations on your graduation and your acceptance to sacramento city college they just sent the letter from the mayor and like jointly signed by the mayor and i think like the superintendent of the school district and i think like um the like superintendent of the community college um and they don't have they haven't analyzed the data yet and so don't have you know numbers yet but it has been reported um that hold on they've they've reported that it's expected to yield positive results and they plan to continue to expand the program this is just through you know probably talking to students and seeing preliminary data um not reportable data but preliminary they are already hoping to expand the program and put more details to it and that it's yielding positive results another thing i actually heard about this this morning so great timing to the, the scheduling of our recording this morning i heard long beach has something very similar that the city of Long Beach has started to go down kind of a Long Beach Promise program. Um, basically, uh, if you're in high school, you get, you know, kind of admission to the, the community college. And if you are in, you know, certain positionality within the community college, automatic admission to Long Beach State, um, which is a really good CSU, one of the top CSUs. And so, you know, the, there there is more and more of this kind of popping out of the woodwork. I also saw the San Bernardino Promise. I saw some... Um, Cal State San Bernardino has some partnerships with some high schools in the district to make that happen and get their top percentage. Um, but so we're seeing we're seeing this pop out of the ground, but doing it at a much wider scale, um, I think would do wonders to the economy. Last thing I'll mention on your question around um, like what other opportunities might exist, work based learning. I think we're going to see a lot more like because think about it. We're, if we do this, that means you're going to have a lot less high school graduates coming out ready for the workforce. And so a lot of the low, you know, kind of low experience, generally low wage jobs that exist will no longer have people to fulfill that, um, which I would say is a good thing because those jobs tend to be a little on the predatory side, um, but not always, somebody got to do them, right? And so what I think might happen here is the modernization of technology might occur, um, technology taking over some of that and, being able to pay folks more for the good work that they're doing, but then also being able to get students and say, okay, you're, you're in school now, but let's provide you with a work-based learning opportunity. It's actually going to pay you a living wage, um, but where you're actually going to be able to go back to these places and maybe have a little bit more stake in the work that you're doing, but also have it tie into what you're learning in the classroom. I think that that's an opportunity that exists 
to kill two birds with one stone, get people in the classroom, get them still to work, still be getting, you know, a little bit better of an income than they maybe would have had without the college attached, but still keeping the the current economy that we have um, up and running and pushing to advance technology at the same time. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. And um, I think like, like looking at the UK right now, there's been like a huge push for apprenticeships for like jobs that, you know, specifically require more experience than like more hands-on uh work than maybe like in a classroom work and i mean it'll like time will Mm -hmm. tell how this all turns out but i do think it's like it's an interesting concept it's i would i need to learn more about it on honestly but like um but it is it is like a i feel like it's a viable way forward and something like a lot more people would consider and i think it'll take like It'll take like a lot of effort in the sense that I think um, like college as a social incubator gets like very idealized sometimes as well. So like going and like not doing college, maybe like doing an apprenticeship alternatively, like there needs to be like some kind of like it needs to be like amped up in the same way. Similar with community colleges. I think, you know, if people are considering going to community colleges versus four year. I think like that college experience is something that like is often deterred and, and like it genuinely needs to be a focus of, of policy solutions, you know, putting more money into community colleges, putting more money into, you know, making it a, a good experience um, for students. Going back to what you were talking about, about your experiences in third grade um, and other examples of similar, well, like similar in terms of goals, um, policies that you've seen. Um, I was wondering what you what kind of collaboration you'd like to see at an elementary school level, at a middle school level to help students get to the point where when they're leaving high school, they're ready for automatic enrollment? Um, because there's a lot of issues in the system, even before we get to high school, that need to be fixed. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think that's a really good question. I look back on those experiences and like the reality is I never recovered as a student from that. Like it was like I was you know, considered one of the the top in the class, third grade, I dipped to the bottom and never made my way back up to the top. And I think my care for, about school just like went right out the window, like from third grade to like grad school, <laughs> from third grade to like grad school, I cared a lot more about like what I was doing outside of the classroom than I did what I was doing in the classroom. And even now I'm still not the best. And so what I would imagine is um, once once the system realizes that every single student is going to have to be ready for college, I think what we're going to stop doing is this tiered system in K through 12 that currently exists where, you know, you got the gate or like the, the honors students that might be considered honors. Like you go into those classrooms and I was the, I was a student. They called me a bubble student, um, which is basically like I'm in the middle, like I'm on the verge. Like I was in some honors classes, but not all of them. I cared about. Did they actually call you a bubble student? Like officially? I yes. I was That's in, wild. I was in eighth grade when I got a little you know when we get those little slips to the principal's office? Um, I got a little slip to the principal's office where I talked to some administrator, I think she was the assistant principal, and she called me to my face a bubble student. Where she said, like, you you're smart, you show that, you take honors classes here and there, but you're like, why aren't you trying harder? Essentially was her question um and they called she called me bubble student like I, i'm on the bubble i, I to my face 
Which back then I didn't I didn't care. I, I wouldn't say that that conversation like did anything to me. I was like, yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> um, but I think like I think once we actually start treating every single student like they're gonna go to college, the game will change. Because right now we don't do that. We tear out students. We say those ones are for sure going to college. Those ones aren't, and we treat those two groups differently. And I say that because I was in both, and I remember being in the. The honors classes and the teachers are talking like when you're in college this is how it's gonna be or you need to do this to prepare for college or in college and college and college and when i was in like the non-honors classes or like classes that were kind of a little bit more mainstream you don't get as much of that you got a little bit of it you'd get like the maybe if you go to college it, it, but you don't get a lot more about you'll have to do this for the workforce you'll have to do this when you get a job um and so if you change the system to where Everybody you look at on a K through 12 campus has to be college ready and you got to treat them like that. I think I think the whole thing will be shifted on its head. The California master plan for higher education kind of is perpetuating that. Um, I, I think it needs some changes. But currently it's the 10 top 10 percent of high school graduates are expected to be at the UC. Top 33 percent are expected to be at the CSU and the bottom 70. What, no, the bottom 67 are supposed to go to community college or otherwise. That's how, that's why our education system works that way. There's a set number of students that you're like, you're supposed to go to the UC, you're supposed to go to the CSU, everybody else, figure it out. At what age do you think that process of differentiating starts between who's going to college and who doesn't? Like, which, when, when? would you say like right when we start kindergarten? I think it depends on your school district. I know for a fact, interesting and interestingly enough, I know for a fact for the Redlands Unified School District in the time of which I went through it, it was third grade. And that was when we, a few things happened. The standardized testing was one of them um, that we, you know, started doing. I think that started in like second grade, actually. Like as soon as you're able to like read and write, they start testing you on stuff. Um, but I don't know if you all had the gate system, gifted and talented education. Third grade was when you, was yes. when you learn who got into gate and who didn't. And interestingly enough, and this is, I might be taking too much space with this. Um, both of my sisters were gate students. And so uh, as the baby, of course, my parents were like, you're going to be a gate student too. Um, I was not. And I remember that, like getting the letter that said, I'm not a gate student. And my parents being like, what is wrong with you? But <laughs> I like look, I mean, they, of course they weren't actually like, what is wrong with you? Um, but, you know, of course they felt some, you know, you got a little energy. They felt some sort of way, maybe, you know, the, I wasn't, I've never been as academically capable as my sisters. Let me put it that way. My sisters are way better than me in the classroom. Um, but I looked back very recently, actually, when I was writing this paper, as to how you get to be a GATE student. Part of it is standardized testing, but there is a requirement for a recommendation from your third grade. Shut up. Oh, my gosh. This is such, this is such a good, this is so deep. Oh, my God. I did not realize that. Who was my third grade teacher? <laughs> no michael that is wild oh that is so wild i'm so sorry it's all good it's all good i think like there's a part of it where it's like oh test scores it's like there's different it's not like every i think everybody had to get like a check from their teacher um that like the stuff you're seeing is correct but of course there's like you have to look at their standardized test scores and et cetera, et cetera. and i've always been in the like like the the middle to high range, depending on the test. <laughs> the, like, the bubble. I think students that are there. 
the bubble, literally the bubble. Um, I think the students that are there have to get have to get a, a teacher. That's referral. wild. I'm I'm actually gonna find the yeah the document. That, that is so that, interesting. I, I remember reading that for sure. Oh my gosh, it is interesting. I think like I mean, it's such like critical. I mean, every time during your academic experience, I feel like it's really critical as to. Oh, we're getting we're getting an end. We have to go. <laughs> um, oh, but yeah, so I was like to go on a tangent, but I was just going to say that like so much of like people's identity is, is attached to or detached to the way that the education system treats them at, you know, a given point or like throughout the whole process. And um, yeah, it's like, it could be, I don't know. It's just very disheartening often. Um, and thanks for sharing this with us and coming up with such a great solution that, you know, if implemented, would uh, probably get a lot of people to avoid what you had to go through. Um, so, thanks, Michael. I completely agree. Like I, I think everyone's a lot of young people shape their ambitions based off of the way their teachers treat them because of just how much time we spend in the classroom. So, teachers should be nurturing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is very true. And then we get into the we need to train our teachers and like you know um pay them more to actually put that care into the students that they're working with um but there's this is this is dense this is dense stuff and you start to realize that it's all kind of interconnected and i often think about like my path was devised you know i think my path is the exception not the rule i fully believe that um not to say like i'm special (laughs) but more so to say that i think a lot of there's a lot of factors about me and my past and my family that made it so I was still able to be successful but a lot of other students don't have those same you know like you might look at me as an individual as a third grader and be like he's not going to make it places but did they know that you know I had older sisters that were like passing with flying colors and parents who moved to the United States for education and were not going to let me fail Um, not all students, you know, have those kind of support structures around them in their family in order to succeed and still have that inspiration and get an F on the test and still, you know, trying to find find a way to persevere. Um, and, and so part of it is thinking about how do we, how do we still put those structures in place for the students that don't already have it built into their lives from their personal relationships or familial relationships. Thanks y'all for listening. And scene. This was PolicyWise, an intergenerational podcast by Youth Leadership Institute focused on bringing young people into the policy conversation. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PolicyWisePod. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss, please slide into our DMs or send us an email at policywise at yli.org. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes.